Oh, Jesus, we need your mercy. We are a people that lack your heart of mercy in of ourselves. Would you take us on this journey? Even as we see the ridiculousness of Jonah, would we have revealed the ridiculousness of our own hearts? Would we know a new reason to worship you? You, the the God that is full of mercy for sinners like us. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. What could only be a gaunt, frozen corpse walked into their midst, carrying a rifle. Terror gripped their hearts, but only for a moment. This corpse talked, identified himself. Incredible as it was, he was old Hugh Glass. Tension melted into relief. Celebration, a barrage of questions. That is except for one man, young Jim Bridger. He stood frozen in shock and fear. That's a description of a true American tale from back when the West was still wild. Back on the frontier, there was a man named Hugh Glass. He was a famed trapper. He was out with a group of trappers doing what they do, catching animals to get their skins. And somewhere along the way, he ended up on the wrong end, the business end, of a grizzly bear. His wounds were so grievous that his companions assumed he was a goner. So they left him there to die, taking his rifle, his equipment, and leaving him alone in the cold wilderness. Only Hugh Glass wasn't dead yet. And he, as he regained his strength, he first crawled, then he limped, and then one day he walked and walked and walked, driven by the most American of all impulses, revenge. He went over 200 miles across the plains, tracking down the men that betrayed him. You can see why Hollywood picked this up and made it into a movie. You know, that impulse to get even with our enemies, uh, that, it's not new, and yet we live in a day and age where it seems to have found a new renaissance. It's been rightfully said we live in a time of the new tribalism. People identify with all sorts of different groups, whether it's one or the other side of the political aisle or a certain ethnicity or a certain race or a certain nationality. And also often we find the way to not just identify with a group, but to identify those people who are our enemies. And boy, do we love it when they get what's coming to them. Just think of Twitter mobs. And how quickly people move toward digital justice on someone that dares to cross them. Well, it's for this reason that I think that the book of Jonah is a book that we desperately need in the day and age in which we live. Because Jonah at its heart is a book about the heart of God. A heart filled with mercy towards sinners of all types. Even sinners like you and me. That's what we're going to see in this series. It's really a journey following this prophet Jonah, who ironically lacks the heart of mercy that his, his uh, God that he serves has. And by way of contrast, we'll learn a bit about ourselves and how we can discover God's heart of mercy. Now, before we dive into the series, I, I have a, a few misconceptions about the book of Jonah that I have to clear up. First, Many people think it's mainly about a big fish. You think of Jonah, the first thing that comes to mind may be a whale. 
Uh, uh, let me just point out that there's only two verses where the whale is featured prominently. It's not even a whale. It's called a big fish along the way. But it's, to focus on the whale is to miss the point. This book is about Jonah and the God he serves and the mercy of the God he serves. As one preacher, Stuart Briscoe, put it, too many people are concerned with Jonah's fish and not enough are concerned with Jonah's God. Second myth that we have to bust about this book is that it's really a big fish story. Now, uh, maybe you know that idea of a big fish story, a, a story you tell and retell, and the size of things gets exaggerated along the way. Uh, uh, when I was a youth pastor in a uh, season gone past, there was one of my early years, a youth group event that went awry, and uh, at some point or the other, the police showed up. Um, <laughs> everything was fine, but... It was funny that the next year to hear the students that were there tell the story to the next class that wasn't there. And it wasn't just one police car that came, it was two. And before you know it, it wasn't just two police cars, but students being dragged off in handcuffs. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what happens in this youth group. Many people think Jonah is just a big fish story, that it's, it's just an exaggerated story we tell to illustrate some principles or morals. Now, Friend, let me just point out, I don't think that's the way to understand Jonah. One, it's in the Bible. We trust the Bible to be true here at College Park Castleton. Second, it's one of the 12 minor prophets. And none of the other books sets us up to expect a fable or a myth in its midst. And, and third, I think if you're a Christian, I hope you want to understand the Bible the way Jesus does. And if you take the time to look at how Jesus talks about Jonah... It seems pretty clear to me that Jesus thought Jonah was real and that this, all the events described in this book really happened. Maybe this afternoon you look at Matthew 12, 38 to 42, Matthew 12, 38 to 42, and see for yourself whether you think Jesus thinks that Jonah told that this book is actually true. So what is it about then? If it's not, not a, mainly about a big fish, it's not a big fish story, what is it about? Well, it's a small book that packs a major punch. Uh, I told you it's one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean it's insignificant. It just means it's smaller in size. There's 12 of them. The other 11 mostly are trumpeting the judgment of God towards his people and the nations around them. But Jonah, uniquely, Jonah puts the focus squarely on the, God, on the mercy of God towards sinners. It acts as a counterbalance to the heavy emphasis of judgment in the rest of the prophets. Now, there's another unique feature. Jonah is a, a narrative. It's a story. The rest of the prophets are, are essentially sermons. They're pro, uh, prophecies that were given from these people that were spokespersons for God. Now, in this book, we will see a whole series of outsized examples we will see a great, uh, a great storm. We'll see a great fish. There will be a great city. There will even be a great revival. And yet all of it is driving it to the one behind all these things, the, the great God who is sovereign over all of these events, who won't let this running prophet go until he discovers God's heart of mercy. One of the things I've really loved studying Jonah these last few weeks is the way that it uses satire and, I think, humor to expose a heart that lacks God's mercy. We're going to find ourselves, as we follow Jonah through his journey to God's mercy, we're going to find ourselves laughing at him at first. And yet, at some point along the way, 
we'll see a little too much of ourselves in Jonah. And our laughter will evaporate and we'll feel conviction. And yet, as we complete the journey, friends, we will end on wonder. Wonder at a God so full of mercy that even his enemies, even his enemies would be those that he wants to repent. Now, we have a a long journey ahead of us for over four weeks, but this morning our attention will focus on God's mercy in one particular place, his heart of mercy towards those who run. We'll see that in three sections, moving us through the narrative, three sections and God's heart of mercy towards those who run. First, in one through three, we'll see a prophet that runs, a prophet Jonah that runs from his calling. Second, in 4 through 10, we'll see a storm that reveals, a storm that corners this disobedient prophet and exposes his heart. And then fourth, we'll see a God that shows mercy, a God so full of mercy that even a disobedient prophet, and yes, those who don't know him, experience the transformation of his mercy. Let's begin in one through three. A prophet that runs. In verse one, we're told the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Right at the beginning there, we see there's a word of the Lord coming to Jonah. And that is a, a very common Old Testament formulation for God sending someone to be his spokesperson. Usually right after it, you get the actual message they are sent to, to, send, to speak. Um, in this case, we have a narrative, which is Jonah being commissioned to go and be a, God's missionary to these people, the Ninevites. Now, we know it's an urgent call that he receives because verse 2, he says, arise and go. That's a way of saying, right now, Jonah, go do this. But now you have to ask yourself, who is this prophet that God is sending? Who is Jonah? Well, Jonah is back in time about 800 years from John, where we were last, about 2,800 years from today. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point, God's people were broken into the northern and southern kingdoms. Jonah was in the north. He was a a prophet during a period where Israel's borders were expanding. Uh, We see a little glimpse into his ministry in 2 Kings. Uh, Maybe this afternoon you read 2 Kings 14, verse 25. You'll see that's the other spot in the Old Testament where he's mentioned. We see that he was serving during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam was not a faithful king. And yet he experienced the blessing of the Lord in that he was able to take back much of the land that Israel had lost to their enemies, the Assyrians. Jonah had the role of being the prophet that declared that God's people would be victorious in their battles. You could say Jonah was a pro-Israel prophet in a time when Israel was not pro-Yahweh. So Jonah has this streak of nationalism running through him, which makes the calling that he receives a bit strange. He's told to go to Nineveh, the great city of the Assyrians. 
Now at this point, Nineveh was not the capital of the Assyrians, but it would be soon after. It was a great city. It had lots of wealth to it. We know from archaeology there were some pretty incre incredible architectural uh, design, uh, features that this city had. It had a, a greater metropolitan around it. It was a very significant city in the Assyrian Empire. Now, you have to understand the Assyrians were the ones that had been taking land from God's people. And at this point, the Assyrians were in a bit of a recession and their borders had been shrinking as they were taking care of issues at home. But everyone knew it was just a matter of time before Assyria was back on top. And making matters worse, the other prophets in Jonah's days were already predicting that Assyria was going to be the one to come and conquer Israel. So you have a nationalist prophet who knows that his enemies, Assyria, are coming to knock on their door someday soon. And he's being told to go and preach to those very people a message of judgment. Now, that's obviously not for the faint of heart, but as we'll see in this book, Jonah's not afraid of dying. No, he's afraid that these people will actually respond in repentance. Jonah's sent to this great city to call out against it, and what Jonah fears is that they might actually listen. So that's what leads to verse 3, the first shock of the story this morning. This prophet sent by God runs away. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Location tells us through repetition here what's going on with Jonah. Do you notice that repetition? He's going down, down to Joppa, down into the boat. His downward descent into disobedience isn't done yet. It'll play out over the next couple chapters. But there's this other, other thread running through here that he's running away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is very transparently trying to get away from God. The geography that's revealed here tells us that that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, he was supposed to go to essentially modern-day Iraq, Mosul, somewhere around there. Supposed to go east. And instead... Jonah goes as far as the world extends, as far as he knows. He goes all the way west to the edge of Spain. It would be like God saying, go to Boston, and you getting on a plane and going to California, and then getting on a boat and going to Hawaii. It's going the exact opposite way. Now, at this point, you can't help but wonder, what in the world is he thinking? Who... Who does he think he's fooling? You, you can't outrange God. You certainly can't outrun him. And yet that's exactly what Jonah's doing. Oh, he knows well what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. The ridiculousness of this prophet that runs should not be lost on us. But the story doesn't end there. No, we have to see next the way this, this uh, prophet's heart is exposed. And that's what we see in verses 4 through 10. See, not just the prophet that runs, 
But we see the storm that reveals that reveals his heart. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. Now in this section of the story, we see four contrasts that bring out the utter ridiculousness of Jonah. Four contrasts that are dripping with irony of this disobedient prophet. The first, you have the contrast of vigilant sailors and a useless prophet. We're told in verse 4 that the Lord throws a giant storm on the sea. It's so intense that the boat is actually breaking at the seams. And then we see these sailors who don't know the God that Jonah serves spring into action. They start doing everything they can to save themselves. They start off using religion. They cry out to their pagan gods. You also see there that they start trying to use their physical actions. They start throwing things overboard in an attempt to save themselves. But friends, you can't out-throw God. So their throwing, their striving is in vain, which leads to this second great irony along the way. Not just that Jonah is sleeping uselessly in the boat, but that Jonah receives a second commissioning from a very different person. Look there in verse 6. Sorry, in verse 8. No, I I got it right the first time, verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. The captain comes down below decks and surprise, surprise, finds Jonah uselessly sleeping. He, maybe he kicks him, somehow he wakes him up and he says, arise. Now friends, this is the second time someone has told Jonah to arise. The first time it was from God himself. The second time echoing that call from God, a pagan that doesn't know Jonah's God, points out Jonah's failure. Arise, get up. And then what is he instructed to do? The prophet is called by a pagan to pray. Do you see the irony of this? Oh, Jonah is such a failure as a representative of his God. He's not even participating in trying to save this boat. The captain shows a little more faith there. He says, maybe the God you cry out to will will consider us and will save us. Well, the irony continues by way of contrast. In verse 7, we see that the sailors are the ones that are actually given divine knowledge of Jonah. Verse 7, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, usually the prophets are the ones that God gives a little bit of secret knowledge to expose the hearts of those hearing their message. But look at how the tables are turned here. These pagan sailors that don't know Jonah's God, they they use basically a game of dice 
to figure out who's to blame for this divine storm. And wouldn't you know it, surprise, surprise, the lot falls on Jonah. Now, friends, there's really no such thing as a coincidence. Not when there's a sovereign God that made us all who governs this world. As Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, that's not saying that we should try and divine God's will by throwing dice or something random. But it is acknowledging that our God is so big that we cannot hide from him, even, even hoping that random chance would shield people from us. Jonah is exposed, and in being exposed, he is cornered. God makes sure his prophet knows he may run, but he will never get away from the God who called him. Now, I think verses 8 through 9 are the center of this whole passage. Now that he's cornered, Jonah finally gets around to doing what he's supposed to do, revealing who he is and the God he serves. Then he said to them, and you can almost feel his shoulders go back and his chest puff out as he does. Verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry ground. They want to know who Jonah is, and Jonah tells them, first and foremost, nationalist pride, I am a Hebrew. Second, I serve the God who made this whole world, including the sea that's raging around us. But do you notice the walking contradiction that Jonah is? If his words that he's saying, if he believes them to be true, and that he serves the God that is in control of the sea, what is Jonah do, doing trying to run away from this God in a boat? It's not lost on the sailors, verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, what is this you have done? Jonah claims to fear the God of heaven, and it turns out these pagan sailors are giving him a lesson of what true fear of God is. All of this is to show us a prophet whose heart totally lacks perspective. A prophet who doesn't reflect the God he speaks for, and a prophet who needs his heart to be changed to have his God's heart of mercy. The final contrast is that in verse 10, who is it that really fears the Lord? Well, it's actually these, these sailors. These men know that fleeing from the presence of the God who made this world is a fool's errand. And yet here is Jonah trying to do that very thing. Jonah is exposed, and as he's exposed, he gives us a window into our own spiritual walking contradictions, the way our own souls disobey a God we claim is all-seeing, all-powerful, and all-good. Well, the narrative has one more section through it. It's not just Jonah being exposed. It's not just him running it's not just the storm that exposes his heart. This is all being, it's all driving us toward the God who is about to show mercy in verses 11 through 16. The God who shows mercy. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest 
has come upon you. The sailors asked Jonah, okay, Jonah, you've revealed yourself. You're the one that serves the true God that's caused this to happen. What do we got to do to save ourselves? And you might think Jonah has an epiphany or a moment of virtue that just springs out of his heart. Well, you could just throw me overboard and that, that'll save you. Sacrifice my life for yours. I don't think that's the right way to understand what Jonah says here, though. No, I think Jonah, out of spite and defiance, is essentially saying, okay, God, you cornered me? Then go ahead and kill me. That's exactly what's going to come out as the story progresses. Jonah would rather die than accomplish the mission God has sent him to do, a mission of mercy. Well, the sailors, for their part, again, are valiant. They don't want to kill Jonah. So we see they try another round of using their own strength to save themselves in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Friend, you can't run from God. You can't outthrow God, and you can't outrow God. Only God can get you out of a storm of judgment and you won't leave it a second before he is good and ready. In verse 14 and 15, we see they, they finally relent and do so, but they do so with an appropriate amount of fear. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as you please. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Did you notice this group of pagan sailors that doesn't know the God that sent Jonah? They are the only ones that pray in this whole passage. God's prophet never puts on sackcloth and ashes and repents. He never cries out for mercy to God because it's the very thing he despises. No, it's these pagan sailors that pray and ask for mercy. And friends, they receive it. They give Jonah the old heave-ho. And in so doing, miraculously, the storm stops on a dime. They, the whole boat is saved in an instant. Now, we can see that this isn't just a momentary noticing of God's mercy. Now, this mercy they have received results in hearts that are transformed. In verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see how they moved from general fear of the storm to great fear as Jonah reveals himself, and they understand the God who is raging the storm, and now they exceedingly fear. That is the, the right sort of reverential fear of the God that has made us all. Now, but that fear is also matched with a heart that knows this God in a worshipful way. It says they sacrificed to the Lord. I don't think they were carrying with them animals to make the sacrifices. So that likely means they got back to shore and their life from there forward was, met, was spent worshiping the God that sent Jonah. They made sacrifices. They made vows. Vows are ongoing obligations. These are people that have tasted of God's mercy and have been transformed by it. What we see here is an example of the mercy of God to a boat full of men who didn't know him and yet were saved by him. 
Now, let's not also not pass over the fact that Jonah himself is a recipient of mercy. God could have washed his hands of his disobedient prophet. He could have let this be the end of Jonah's story, and frankly, I don't think anyone would have blamed him. But this is just the beginning of Jonah's journey, of a journey to discover the heart of his, the God that sent him, a heart that is full of mercy for sinners like you and me. God won't let his running prophet go. And that's good news for sinners of all types because we come to the same God that can show us that same mercy. So what do we do with this? How do you apply a a story like this to your life as a Christian living 2,800 years later? Let me give you three lines of application. First, friend, don't run from God. Don't run from God. While you're thinking clearly, get this straight in your heart. It is never the right decision to consciously disobey God. Don't set off on a journey downward in disobedience, knowingly doing things that God does not approve of. Friend, it will never end well for you. There's a preacher named Barnhouse who noted that Jonah never got where he was going, but he still bought the ticket. This is what he said. It's always that way. When you run away from the Lord, you never get where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. Friend, whatever disobedience maybe you're contemplating today, realize it won't pan out. It won't be as satisfying as you imagine it will be. It won't bring you peace or joy or happiness. No, friend, it will only end in sorrow. Don't try and run from God with your disobedience. Remember, he's the God that made this world. He he knows your heart. It's no surprise to him you're tempted the way you are. So, friend, if you're here today and maybe you're contemplating a romantic relationship that you know God wouldn't approve of, Or maybe you're about to make a decision with your finances you know is not honoring to God. Or maybe your conduct with your kids has frankly been sub-Christian. Friend, hear this reminder. Don't continue down that road of disobedience. Don't buy that ticket. You won't get where you're going, but you will pay the fare. Second, For maybe there's someone here this morning who's already pretty far down that road. Maybe you haven't been in church a while, or maybe you know you're far from God. I hope this morning that you hear that there is mercy. There is mercy available for those who have run from God. I I don't know what particular circumstances or sins you've fallen into. I, I don't know your story, friend, but God knows it. And the heart full of mercy that he showed to these sailors and to Jonah, friend, that heart of mercy is directed towards you also. Would you do a U-turn this morning? Maybe before you leave, you need to come pray with somebody. There'll be someone up front that would love to help you sort out what it means to stop running and come back to the God full of mercy towards sinners. So first, don't run from God. Second, Know your call. Know your call. Now, many of you are, are, uh, there's so many of you that 
very joyful to know you are engaged in ministry for the Lord, whether that's something you get paid for or, or something you just use your own time intentionally for. I hope you find joy serving the Lord in whatever capacity he gives you. But maybe you're here this morning and God's laid something on your heart that he wants you to do for him, but you're thinking about saying no. Maybe you're fearful that you won't measure up. Maybe you're not sure how it's all going to turn out. Friend, maybe you need to hear today that if God calls you to something, then he'll provide all the grace and mercy you need along the way. Don't resist the call. Seek it out. And if you need help sorting through that, come talk to me or a mature Christian friend. Help someone, have some, uh, someone help you evaluate whether God is calling you to serve him in some special way. Now, please don't think that if you aren't engaged in vocational ministry, like a, a pastor or a missionary, that you're some sort of second-class Christian. That is not the case. God deals with us each individually, and whatever he calls us to is worthy ministry as Christians. All of us are called to being part of the body of Christ. All of us are called to being Christ's ambassadors in this world. All of us are called to living holy lives for Christ. Friend, ask yourself, are you following the call of Jesus? Are you living in his joy as his servant? Third line of application. Respond to the mercy of God. Respond to the mercy of God to you. It wasn't just pagan sailors that needed God's mercy. It's not just Jonah that needs God's mercy. All of us need God's mercy. In some way or the other, we have all run from God. Whether it's a big lifelong sort of sin or, or just the heart that's unwilling to change and bend towards God as it should. All of us in some way have, like sheep, gone astray. But friends, remember the mercy you have received if you are a Christian. Because remember, friends, Jonah was not the only prophet in, a, in the bottom of a boat in a raging sea. 800 years later, there would be another prophet sent from God sleeping at the bottom of the boat. But when he was woken up, he wasn't powerless over the storm. No, he could still it with a word. That prophet, he didn't sacrifice himself out of spite. No, he did so willingly. He did so out of obedience to his father and his call. Jonah unintentionally led a boat full of men to worship God. But, but Jesus, oh, he so intentionally revealed the father so we could truly worship him in spirit and in truth. Jonah, by his unintentional sacrifice, he, he made it so that a group of pagan sailors weren't killed by a storm. But friends, Jesus... By his death on the cross, he absorbed the greatest storm of all, the very wrath of God towards sinners. Jonah hated God's mercy towards sinners. And yet in Jesus, we have the most clear example, the most clear window into the justice and mercy of God. So brothers and sisters, no matter what sort of running you've been doing from God this week, would you remember the mercy that is yours because of the one greater than Jonah that came for sinners like you and me. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, even as we come to your table, we are reminded that we are sinners in need of your mercy. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have run from you. We have sinned against you. And Lord, if you were lacking in mercy, you would be fully just in executing your judgment against us. And yet, Lord, as the Lord's table reminds us, you are a God that is just and a God that is full of mercy. You are the type of God that not only calls us to himself, but makes a way so that we can come before you and not find wrath, but instead be welcomed as adoptive sons and daughters. As we come to the table, would you remind us of your heart full of mercy for sinners? Yes, even sinners like us. Fill our hearts to worship you, Lord Jesus, we pray in your mighty name. Amen.